A very good morning to you all and also a happy Father's Day, um, a special day for every single one of us. We all come from a father and we all get to call our heavenly father, father as well. And I, I pray that today helps us know him a little bit better and maybe a bit of a challenge, dads out there, that um, as much as today is for every single one of us who are here, I just want to make a special invitation that you take today seriously. Because as you take today seriously, I believe that you've got an incredible opportunity to influence your family and to influence your communities and just your general spheres of influence for the glory of the Lord. And so um, I think today's a big one. And just to help us transition into that, my kids have been watching a show recently called Race to the Center of the Earth. And if you've ever seen Amazing Race, it's like that on steroids. And by that, I mean, there's kind of two aspects to the show that are blowing my mind. On the one hand is the physical demand that the show places on its contestants. This is not kind of running for the taxi or running from this side of the airport to that side of the airport and then kind of putting your feet up and having a cup of coffee. You know, this is like these teams, what they're needing to do, each team is needing to cross an entire continent. And they are crossing seas. They are carrying their luggage through entire bodies of water. They are climbing cliffs hundreds of meters above the ocean. They are getting onto a mountain bike where there are no roads. And they're crossing Russian islands only to get onto a horse and carry on from where they left off. In other words, it is insane what their bodies are, what is demanded of their bodies in this event. So that's the one side. The other side is what they get to see. I mean, they're not going to all the tourist traps. The kinds of things that they are seeing are not the things you see from a parking lot or a tarred road. They are getting to see the best that our planet has to offer. And the average team contestant is saying, listen, I know I can win some money, but this is my reward. And the reason why I bring this up is because I feel like that's been a metaphor for where we are as a church right now in the book of Exodus. Because if you've been journeying with us, it's been quite a task. We've been going into some deep places. We've been touching on some tough things. We've been looking at the law of God and, and what that means for us. We've been looking at the fact that we fail despite all that God wants for us. We've been looking at how our hearts are idol factories. And we've been looking at the fact that we've sung about this, Craig has reminded us of this, that despite our failures, God has made a way. And last week we were looking at atonement and how Jesus is our intercessor, and He stands between us and God, and He dies for us. And it's been some weighty stuff. But at the same time, I know this is true of me, but I also know that this is true of many of you because you've been giving me this feedback. We've had some of the best views of God over the last few weeks. And I think today is going to be no difference and while we're still wading deep into some meaty stuff, I'm really hoping that you're also seeing who God is and that you're walking away with a grander vision 
of who He is. And so in order to do that, Let's dive into where we are. We're heading towards the end of the book of Exodus. If you have your Bibles here, turn with me to Exodus 33. And I don't have time to really catch you up, but uh, at least to say this, we are at this moment. We're still at this moment where we've got Moses in the presence of God. Moses is in the fire cloud in the presence of God. And and, uh, God is giving Moses his law. Moses is experiencing God's presence in such a powerful way. That's the scene at the top of the mountain. The scene at the bottom of the mountain is the Israelites thought that Moses was taking a few days too long. And so they gave up on God and went back to their old idols and their old ways. And so God is ticked. Moses is ticked. Last week we saw how Moses stands in the gap between a sinful Israel and a holy God, and how Jesus is the truer and the better Moses who does the same thing. And today we're going to see much how that theme is developed. But let's read together from Exodus 33, verses 1 to 3. So the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. God's saying, Moses, you know what? I'm gonna be true to my word. I'm gonna give you that land. I'm gonna go ahead of you and I'm gonna fulfill my promises to you and I'm gonna give you everything that you're hoping for except for me. And listen, that that got me thinking. What if God did this? And just by the way, he doesn't come to us with these kinds of tests, but just Work with me on this. Imagine God said to you and me today, I will give you everything your heart truly desires. You know, you say you worship me, but actually you worship these other things. I will give you all that stuff. I will give you the job you want. I will give you the salary you want. I will give you the wife, husband, kid, parent upgrade that you want. I will give you the car upgrade you want. I will let you go wherever you want on holiday three times a year. I will make sure that you never have a down day and you never have a difficult day. I'll give all of that to you, but I won't give you me. Now, listen, (laughs) we're sitting here, right? We know how we should respond to that. And you're watching online and you know that something in you should be like, oh, that's not what I want. But isn't there something in you that's like, oh, you mean everything I really want? Or God? Because that's really what's happening in the crisis of the moments here. But I want to highlight how they responded to this moment. Verse four, when the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn and no one put on any ornaments. 
And so last week we saw how Moses becomes their intercessor, and today we're going to see how he continues to be their intercessor. Let's jump ahead to verse 12. So Moses, in interceding on their behalf, says to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. We sang about that this morning. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. And what I want to highlight in these verses is the priorities of Moses. For him, he's not bummed out by not getting the land and not getting the victory and not getting the blessing. What he's most distressed about is that he's not getting God. And for him, he's saying, listen, I don't want your stuff. I want you. What I want most is to know you. And that you know me and I want to find favor with you. I want to enjoy your pleasure, which is such a challenge to us. Let's continue reading verse 14. So the Lord replied after this intercession, intercession of Moses, the Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And then Moses said to him, well, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What sets us apart is not the, the stuff of God or the things that God gives us, but his very own presence. And that has to be a priority for you and for me. What else will set us apart? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And so the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. Listen, earlier I put out this mini challenge. God gave me everything I really wanted, but not him how would I respond? And so now's an opportunity for me to get a bit real with you. You know, you're like, oh, Pastor Steve. I'm sure he wakes up every single day just desiring the things of God. And some of you who know me better know the truth of what I'm about to say. My heart doesn't always prioritize God. My heart confuses the gifts from the giver. My heart confuses blessing and what God is sometimes doing in hardship. And here's the thing about my heart, is that if I had to wait for my heart on its own to have its priorities straight, to wake up at the morning and the presence of God be the first thing that I desire, that in the midst of trial, my heart is just crying out, God, do what you're doing in me, even if it takes this trial to do that in me. If I do wait for my heart to naturally want those things, I will die having never achieved that. You see, I think some of us here, we hear these challenges. We hear the challenges about idolatry. 
we hear the challenges that we've been exposed to the last few weeks and we're like, yeah, I'm not there. One day I hope to be there. But you know, the, the scriptures say that our heart is deceitful, meaning I am going to be deceived. I am prone to being deceived by my own heart. And so I'm just gonna tell you what I do. And I'm hoping that maybe someone here gets encouraged by this. I have realized I can't wait for better days. And so I need to fight my own heart and I need to train my own heart. And so when I'm going through trials, because listen, I also want an easy life. I also want cool stuff. I also wanna see the world. And when I'm going through trials and when my heart is naturally seeing my trials bigger than God or my view of God are being obscured because of my trials, I've got to take my heart, position myself before God and I've got to choose this. And so the only way I know how to do that is in prayer. And despite what my heart is feeling, I'm gonna say, God, I know that you are doing something in this tough time. And God, I'm not enjoying this. But I've got to trust that you're at work here. And God, not only do I choose to ask you to do what you're doing and, and at the right time to take the trial away from me so that I have a, a chilled, easy life again. No, God, I choose you. You are the greater desire in my heart. And I don't always feel that, but I choose that. And in great times, when I am experiencing plenty and blessing, once again, my heart tends to put that at the center. So I've got to choose daily. Yes, Lord, I thank you that you have given me these things. And there's something in me that is enjoying the gift far more than the giver right now. But God, I choose to declare that I want you more than these things. And I, I've been praying those kinds of prayers for about 10 years now and my heart is kind of maybe roughly pointing in the right direction many days, not every day. And I feel like my heart is making some progress. And I feel like I'm getting somewhere, but I feel like I'm still a student in this. And I've regularly got to fight the automatic desires of my And I know in many ways I'm preaching to the choir, but we're satisfied with ritualistically coming to church and just enduring the worship and this dude who shouts at you on a Sunday. We're satisfied with just kind of like mouthing my words to these songs. I'm satisfied with a little text verse that comes to me every couple of days and I go, ah, oh, sweet. We're satisfied with reading the Bible every now and again and hoping God notices so I get some brownie points. Listen, if, if we know what we would do with the hundred million bucks, why are we satisfied with the richest thing that God could give us, which is His own presence? 
If Moses could say, I want more. And I know your character. You are the kind of God who wants to give me more. I want that heart. I want us to have that heart. Verse 19, and so God replies and says, Listen, I will cause my glory to pass, sorry, my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. Remember, we're at the top of a mountain here. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will remove my hand and you will see my back. But my face must not be seen. You know what God's saying? You want to see my glory? You can't handle my glory. And so I'm going to show you what you can't handle. I'm going to allow you to see something of me and everything in you and me is like, what did that look like? Like if we had an iPhone out on that day, what did Moses see? But God is saying, I'm going to reveal myself to you. And then he says a strange thing and theologians are really confused by what it means. He'll see, you'll see my back. And most agree that it's not like we'll see the actual back of God, but somehow his glory will pass by and Moses will see like the afterglow. Because that's all he can cope with. Now let's skip ahead to kind of what this looks like in chapter 34 verses 5 to 7. So then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. And so we don't know what Moses sees, but as God is choosing to reveal a greater level of him, Himself to Moses, coupled with this visual revelation, is his name and his character. And that we've got a record of. And so Moses is witnessing something so unique, but regardless of what kind of Bible you've got here, whether it's on your phone, a tablet, or a paper Bible like this, what I want to encourage you to do is to take these verses and highlight them, bold them, uh, underline them. And the reason is these verses are the most quoted verses in the Bible by the Bible. These verses are more quoted by the prophets, by the psalmists, by the New Testament authors than any other single verse. If the Old Testament authors and even Peter and Paul had a Bible like yours and mine, bound like this, which they didn't, but if they did and the Bible just fell open, it would fall open here. Because it is crystal clear that every single one of the prophets 
And every single one of the New Testament authors saw this revelation of God, His name and His character as foundational to our understanding of who God is. Now listen, we could literally preach an entire sermon series on each of these attributes. So what I'm about to do seems sacrilegious. But let's just go through it so quickly. When the Lord says here, He's proclaiming His name in verse 6, the Lord, the Lord. Do you remember what His name means? It means I am. I am. I am. I am the compassionate God. You know, the biblical idea of compassion is, have you ever seen someone in such a desperate situation that you're moved in your guts? That's what this word means. That God sees us and He's so compassionate. He's so emotionally involved with our lives and our futures that He's moved by His compassion. I am compassion. I'm also the gracious God, meaning I am the God who gives. I'm the God who is the good Father. I'm the God who gives good gifts. I'm the God who gives abundantly. I'm the God who gives of Himself. I am a gracious God. Then He says, I am slow to anger. Yes, I get angry. And we, we looked at this last week. I mean, just two quick examples. Yes, the Israelites are going to be moving into the promised land and a lot of people are offended by this. But do you know that the Lord allowed the Canaanites to wallow in their sin for 400 years before He judged them? That's a patient God. You and I don't have that kind of patience when it comes to the human evil that we see around us. You know that after the, the Israel became established, God was patient for them, with, uh, patient with them for hundreds of years, enduring their idolatry and their injustice, warning them time and time again, calling them back to this covenant before he took them into exile. Yes, yes, he gets angry, but I'm slow to anger. I'm also abounding in love. This is one of those Hebrew words that I think is worth knowing. Once again, helps you clear your throat. It's the word chesed. Chesed. You have to spit on the back of the person in front of you to say this word properly. Now, some of you maybe have different translations here. They're trying to interpret this word chesed. The ASV says loving kindness. The ESV says steadfast love. The NLT says unfailing love. The NIV says abounding in love. I hope you're just getting the picture here. God is saying, I am this kind of love. I am so committed to you in love. I have degrees and quantities of love that will blow your mind. That is who I am. And then he says, I am also faithful. Meaning I am completely committed to you. I am completely reliable. I always come through for you. That is who I am. And then verse seven, maintaining love to thousands. 
and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generation. And so some people see some strange stuff in these verses here. Some people wonder, God, it sounds like you're punishing innocent children. Yes, maybe. If you have a rebellious people, maybe they deserve your judgments. But now you're saying you're going to punish their children and their grandchildren and their grandchildren's children. That doesn't seem fair. That's one sort of question that is raised by these verses. And the other one is, I wonder if there's like some generational curse stuff going on here. And while some guys on YouTube or some pastors overseas and even locally here may preach that kind of stuff from these verses. In all the commentaries that I consulted on these verses, it is not there. The scholars are agreed on a number of things that's going on here. Firstly, God is not punishing innocent children here, this whole third and fourth generation thing. For those of you who are doing the Bible read equip module with us, he has a little uh, trick of the trade when it comes to reading and interpreting scripture is when you see a phrase that is word for word connected to another phrase in scripture, the Bible authors want you to notice that. It's kind of like a hyperlink. You know, you get a Word document or an email document and it's highlighted in blue. You text, you click on that, it takes you somewhere else. That's what they want you to do especially when it's word for word. And so while we see this phrase, what I believe that Moses wants us to think here is just to go back a few chapters, same moment, top of the mountain in Exodus 20, where we're getting the 10 commandments, where once again, this language comes out word for word the same, where God talks about punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Meaning, I will judge those who hate me. And if their children continue, I will judge them too. And if their children pick up where their parents left off, I will also judge those who hate me. The other thing that's going on here is this kind of contrast between showing mercy and grace and forgiveness to a thousand generations compared to judgments of three and four generations, and I'm 100% convinced, I'm gonna throw this ball out there, that God isn't wanting us to count generations. Ooh, okay, my grandfather, okay, he wasn't the greatest guy. I'm two generations down from him. Whoa, I'm still in trouble. Here's my proof. Biblical generation is about 20 years, because that's kind of when people these days had kids, started the next generation. So if God wanted us to count generations, a thousand generations, it's a thousand times 20, that's 20,000 years. We're only three and a half thousand years after this moment. Are you telling me that every generation for a thousand generations after these Israelites have experienced just automatic blessing from God? Every single commentary that I read on these verses is trying to highlight, listen, while God does judge and while God is anti-sin and while God is righteous and while God has every right to judge, His judgment is limited, but His mercy is infinite. His forgiveness and His grace is way bigger and way more infinite when compared to these moments where he does judge sin righteously. 
And in all of these verses, what God is saying is in case anyone's wondering, this is who I am. Now for you and me, these verses I want to propose become the interpretive framework for all other passages of Scripture. In other words, when you come to a passage of Scripture and you're like, I don't get this. Come back to Exodus 33, sorry, 34. And let's reestablish my understanding of who God is. And once I've done that, let me go back to this tricky passage. Now, Stephen, you're only doing that because, you know, these are pleasant verses and, and, and you like the pleasant verses. And so you're playing pick and choose here. No. Number one, God is making it crystal clear. I am revealing myself with a degree of clarity no one's ever received. And so I am choosing to tell you who I am. And number two, all the biblical authors knew that. Once again, the most quoted passage of Scripture in the Scriptures, by the Scriptures. And so as far as I'm concerned, this becomes an interpretive lens for who God is. God wants us to know, like Moses, more and more of Him. You see, when it comes to certain facts, we can know them fully. If I had to say to you, five plus five equals 10, that's about all there is to know about that. That doesn't mean anything. There's nothing else like obscure going on in the physics and the maths. It's like five apples plus five apples equals 10 apples. The end. But when it comes to people and relationships, I mean, Bianca and I have been married just over 15 years and I feel like I know her better now than I did five years ago or 15 years ago. And I hope that that will continue and that I'll know her better in five years time and in 20 years time and in 30 years time. But as much as I believe I know her, there's still so much I don't know about her. I don't always know what she's thinking. Bianca just laughs. I don't always understand what she's feeling. As much as she shared stories of her background and stories of growing up, probably most of the highlights, there are entire years missing in my imagination connected to her. So I have huge missing years in my understanding of who she is. And that's a human being. How much more when we get to know an infinite God is there always going to be more to know? And God doesn't just want you to give a biblical definition of the Hebrew word chesed. He wants you to know his chesed. He wants you to know that He loves you with this committed, loyal love. And He wants you to know that in increasing measure. God doesn't want you to give a five-point answer to the meaning of the atonement and forgiveness. He wants you to experience His forgiveness and His committedness to you in increasing measure. He wants us to know Him more and more and more. And the only way that we can do that 
It's the same with any kind of relationship is when someone reveals themselves to you and you step into that revelation. And so God is revealing himself to Moses and Moses is stepping in. I want more of that. And so I wonder if we could think of a place where God makes himself so known that we can know him better. I don't know, what about John 1 verses 14? This verse we've looked at before in the series for good reason. And again, our, our Bible equip reading people, this verse is one of those verses that, man, there's just, just so many awesome rabbit holes here and depth and layers. But the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Anyone remember what the word dwelling means? <laughs> what do I do here every Sunday? <laughs> he tabernacled amongst us. Just go back a few weeks. Everything that the tabernacle is, God's presence among us, bringing Eden to us, bringing Eden blessing, God's presence so that we could be with Him. Jesus tabernacled amongst us is the word that John uses here. <laughs> we have seen His glory the glory of the one and only. You mean the glory that Moses asked to see? John is saying, we have seen that glory in Jesus. Already we've anchored this verse in Exodus. We know John's brain is in the Exodus story. And we're just gonna see how true that is here. We have seen his glory. I guarantee you he is in Exodus 34. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now we love this verse here at Riverside, but when John is saying Jesus came full of grace and truth, this is way more than saying Jesus was a nice guy who called it like he saw it. John is saying, where do we kind of put this idea of God's presence, of God's glory, and the fact that God's grace and truth come together? Where does that come from? It comes from here. John is saying in just this beautiful Hebrew way, Jesus is these verses. And in case you're not convinced, let's move on. Verse 17 in the book of John. For the law was given through Moses. What is happening in this time? John is in this moment. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. What did God say to Moses? But God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. I said before that there's something in us that maybe goes, oh, Moses had it good. Oh, top of that mountain, the fire cloud, the presence of God, seeing the afterglow of the glory of God. We think Moses had it good. I am 100% convinced that Moses thinks we've got it good. 
because we can see Jesus. And so Jesus is how God reveals Himself in even a greater way to you and to me. Not so that we can pass some Bible study test, but so that we can know Him. And I want to reach out to every single one of you. I don't care how little or how much you think you know of God. There is infinitely more of Him to know. And I want to generate a hunger within you for that. A holy dissatisfaction with the status quo. And just to help us do that, I want to end off with a time of prayer. I'm going to read the prayer to you. And then I'm going to invite those of you who want to pray this prayer to stand and we'll pray this together. So here's what I want to propose or how I want to propose that we respond to God this morning. Lord, I am not satisfied with the boxes I've put you in. I'm not satisfied with how I've made you in my image. I am not satisfied with the way I've limited how much I want to know you. I want to know you more and I want to know more of you. You are the infinite I am. You are infinite compassion and grace, infinite love and faithfulness. You reveal yourself in Jesus and in Jesus we see your glory. I want to know you more and I want to know more of you. If you want to pray that prayer this morning, please won't you stand. Let's read together. Lord, I am not satisfied with the boxes I've put you in. I am not satisfied with how I've made you in my image. I am not satisfied with the way I've limited how much I want to know you. I want to know you more and I want to know more of you. You are the infinite I am. You are infinite compassion and grace, infinite love and faithfulness. You reveal yourself in Jesus and in Jesus, we see your glory. I want to know you more and I want to know more of you. Amen. Father, I thank you that you do reveal yourself. And your word says that when we draw close to you, you draw close to us. And we know that we get to know Jesus because you give us his presence. The spirit of Christ is here. And as much as we can see Jesus in the pages of scripture, you also enable our hearts to see Jesus and to know him. And so Holy Spirit, would you do that mighty work amongst us? Would black words on a white page become blood in our hearts? Would we know you in increasing measure? I'm almost afraid of using this metaphor, but like a drug. The more we have of you, the more we want of you. That is what Moses showed. We are dissatisfied with anything less. 
Thank you, Holy Spirit, for this work that you are doing. Reveal yourself to us. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts. I want to see you. Church, please don't leave this morning with a sense of job done. I just want to invite you to take this desire and take this hunger and take this need and take this prayer with you. Tomorrow, Tuesday, train your hearts and may the Spirit allow you to taste and see that the Lord is good. Thank you, Lord, that you are doing this amongst us. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.